You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season nine, episode one, the already and not yet. Hello, my friends. This is Stephen Roach, and I am thrilled to be back on the show with you today. I've missed being with you here over this past year, and I'm so excited for this new season ahead of us. For me, this has been a time of healing, renewal in my personal life, and ultimately a renewal in my own journey of faith and art. I've written more about my time away on our Instagram at Makers and Mystics, which I'll link in the show notes of this episode. But today, I get to share a conversation with you, which I had with psychologist and author, Dr. Dan Allender. Dr. Dan Allender is the best-selling author of numerous books, including The Wounded Heart, Breaking the Idols of Your Heart, and his most recent book, co-authored with Kathy Lorzell, titled Redeeming Heartache, How Past Suffering Reveals Our True Calling. Having spent 30 years pioneering a unique therapy centered around inner transformation, Dan has seen healing occur in countless individuals by connecting the story of the gospel to people's universal heart wounds. The focus of Dan's work perfectly introduces our theme for season nine of the show, which is mental, emotional, and spiritual health as it relates to the creative artist. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Dan Allender about creativity, the troubled nature of the artist, and the overarching themes from his book, Redeeming Heartache. Patrons of the podcast can enjoy an additional interview segment with Dan on the relationship between creativity, Sabbath, and delight. This is the already and not yet with Dr. Dan Allender. Dan, thank you so much for joining us on the Makers and Mystics podcast. It's a real honor to have you on the show today. Thank you, Stephen. Great honor to be with you. And uh, just the title, Makers and Mystics, is enough to be able to go, who are you? But we'll trade podcasts at some point, but what an honor. Well, there's a real intersection between the maker and the mystic or between mm -hmm. art and faith. And I see that prevalent in your books, in your writings. And that's what I'm really excited to talk with you about today. Thank you. Yeah, it's, you know, the idea of being a creator. Uh, I don't fit the category of artists in the way that I, I think many good artists would name. Uh, it took me years to even admit that I was a writer, even though obviously I've written a number of books. So creativity and being a creator, uh, in some ways, they overlap, obviously, the significance of that core word. But it's a task to actually admit you're an artist. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a task that is very daunting for a lot of people. You know, but I, I think creativity, in my view, is something that's inherent to our humanity. It's a, it's a fundamental part of what makes us human. And I think that the artist is perhaps one of the, the primary places that we see creativity at play, would you say? Oh, it's a beautiful way to begin to say that 
by virtue of being made in the image of God, we are like our creator, and we cannot help but create. And in that creativity, you know, it's a tragedy to think that research indicates that by about age seven or eight, about 80% of a child's creativity has been worked out of them. And I think it's a lifetime, literally a lifetime, to restore what most children have, mm -hmm. at least between the ages of birth and seven, that really constitutes that joy and imagination and the joy in being able to not just create, but to be created in one's own creation. That reminds me of a quote that is attributed to Picasso, where he said, every child is an artist. The problem is how to remain an artist once we grow up. And so it seems that the work of adulthood is getting back to that place of our inherent artistry, I think, you know? Yes, absolutely true. Well, I want to ask you a question. I believe I've heard you say that creativity is a form of honoring the reality of the already and the not yet. I'd love it if you could elaborate on how you see creativity as a way in which we can honor both the already and also the not yet. Well, let me start with this. I think any true artist is a dissenter or a prophetic dissenter, meaning you're looking at the world and saying, what you see is not enough. You need to enter into seeing, not just differently, but anew, afresh, and in a way in which you, you, you see what is, but you see what is not. And that's the concept of the already and not yet. The already not yet is a theological construct that underscores that we are saved, past tense. We are being saved, present tense. And we will be saved, future tense, and that you have to hold all those tenses together to understand the nature of redemption. And if that's true with regard to what generally is called the salvific act, how much more so is that true with regard to being able to look at a world and say, the sentence needs to be spoken, and I don't believe it has been, or this image needs to be recreated and therefore brought to us anew. But it's that interplay of every good sentence we already know, every good sentence leads us to what we don't know, both simultaneously. So, going back to Picasso, you know, the notion of simultaneity is so core to his work, therefore the so-called multiple or dual face, we've got to have that ability to see and not see simultaneously in order to create what is but is not yet. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. That reminds me, of course, of the words of the Apostle Paul, who uh, says, we look not at what is seen, but what is unseen. I think that resonates with that a bit. Very much. Absolutely true. Well, along those lines, there's a tension of creating between the already and the not yet. And I think I've heard you say that this tension can be experienced as an intersection of lament and praise or grief and anticipation or even the past and the future. What can you tell me about how the creative process exists 
in that space of tension. Well, and it's, it's an old saw, but let me say it. And that is most artists are troubled. And, uh, you know, I can say as a, a psychologist, most of us wouldn't have actually entered into the artistry of engaging human lives if we weren't troubled. Mm -hmm. So the prophetic community, and that's what I would say an artist is, to be part of the prophetic community, you're calling people not to just what is wrong and needs to be righted, though there's an element to that. It's that you're stirring imagination. You're creating an image that... I believe is literally part of our body, and that is Eden. You're creating a sense of, let me return you to Eden. But Eden is never Eden anymore, uh, and that is the new heavens and earth make Eden look shabby, which is crazy. How do you make perfection look shabby? Well, that's sort of the wonder of the new heavens and earth. There won't be one tree of life. It will be a whole row of trees of life. So, that's the compelling complexity of an artist. You must bring me what I know, but you must also take me, as we said earlier, to what I don't know. Well, that's impossible. <laughs> I mean, nobody can do that. And therefore, I think there is, uh, you know, for me in my own artistry as a writer, I, I am never happy with what I created. There's mm -hmm. always a sense of, I, I said it, I said it okay, or maybe even well, but it's still not what was within me. Now, on the other hand, I'm thrilled with what I created. It's not a mere criticism. It's that sense that nothing can hold all that I'm meant to be mm -hmm. or what I will one day be. So do you hear, in that sense, every creator laments over their creation. Mm. Yet, if you're aware that all creation ultimately is a gift, then there's a sense of, I can't believe I got to be part of this. Yeah, I was the writer but I still got to be part. And when I played with fiction, often characters will respond to me with a, that's not what I'd say. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's like, wh wh where's that voice coming from? Uh -huh. uh, so lament is always a core sense of we are not, and, and the world around us is not what it was meant to be. And yet to name and to create even a sliver of what will one day be uh, is so intoxicating and sweet, yet it's that taste of glory that actually creates an even greater lament that what I have captured and been captured by is such a brief taste of what will be for eternity. So there is lament loss past, but there is a lament anticipation. But if it is bound into a sense of joy, then you're living that paradoxical prophetic stance of not only calling people back to what they were meant to be, but also creating desire for what it is that we all know we want to be. And I think holding that tension is part of the complexity 
of what a creator has to bear. Well, as we're talking about creating from this place of tension, this reminds me of something I've heard you say concerning beauty. And you said that beauty not only heals, but it disrupts us by awakening desire and it reorients us to what we were most made to experience. Well, and that that's the prophetic work. You know, again, sometimes we think of the prophet as merely confronting, as kind of saying, you have lived in injustice and unrighteousness. And a prophetic voice like Picasso's Guernica, yes, there is a beastly, beautiful but beastly exposure of violence uh, in that particular painting. Yet, the very nature of the beauty that he creates doesn't just expose, it invites us to an imagination Mm -hmm. as to what could be. So I think that's that tension of an artist awakens desire. And in that sense, all artistry is erotic. Uh, again, if you think of the word erotic as merely the word sexual, you 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 mishear me. Um, it, it is that it is arousing the senses for a movement toward consummation, toward a ah oh, yes, and that yes. Um, I think again, the brilliance of true artistry is. It exposes while simultaneously heals. Mm -hmm. And in that exposure, it it is not with pointed finger, it's with the invitation to join, to actually say, you too can create. Maybe not like Chagall. If you looked at my office, there are about four prints of Chagall. And so Chagall happens to be an artist that I would say in my writing if I can mirror anything of what he accomplished in his paintings particularly, um, but also stained glass and other work, then I've not only, I've not added, but I've aggregated myself to a way of looking and seeing and engaging the world that does not so much say Chagall was great. It says the creator who drew him to imagine a level of Eastern European, Russian, Hungarian Jewry in isolation and exile, get a need for love. Well, that's what I would say I want to capture. We as exiles can be in love. We can have tender embrace that is erotic, playful, and yet calls us to become even more than who we are. Mm-hmm. If even one person outside of this podcast is able to make that connection between the work of Chagall and my writing, I, I would be beyond myself with a kind of, I've accomplished in part what I was meant to create on this earth. And Every artist has to have conversational partners, people whom they have taken from, expanded, changed, and in some sense, they owe part of their creativity to the figures who have come before 
in order to imagine and draw others into a new future. That's what I keep com- coming back to, that relationship between the present and the past, mm-hmm. and that into the future as well. What you're saying reminds me also of the sensual, and you use the word erotic, but also talking about the sensual in the sense of the senses or sensory. And the relationship between the senses and the spiritual is one that historically, I don't think that Christendom has always understood necessarily, but it's it's so evident even in the words that you're saying and what you're talking about, the relationship between the spiritual seen through the senses or experienced through the senses. That's something that really fascinates me. Oh, it's so important. I love that you've underscored that because, you know, Neoplatonism has been in many ways the death knell of sensuality in the church. And again, not to fault our early church mothers and fathers, but they were deeply affected by this division between the spirit and the body. And what we know, even over the last 15 years, with regard to brain science uh, and the reality that most of what we refer to as creativity comes out of our right hemisphere. Now, not exclusively, but largely, which is the portion of our brain that is not easily defined as sequential, logical, language-based. And so, even for a writer whose primary medium is words, the imaginative process does not largely come out of the left hemisphere. And we are terrified of the right hemisphere, because that's where dreams come from. That's where our fear and fantasy comes from. It's where our sensuality comes from. And so, when we begin to engage left and right hemisphere, that's wholeness, integration, yet there is a ascendancy to the right hemisphere in every creative process. Again, planning a board meeting, which may not look like creativity, but I've been to meetings that are a prototype of hell, uh, (laughs) and largely because they lack creativity. So, the reality is that whenever we create a plan for a summer vacation, a board meeting, uh, how you're going to cut your lawn. Like, do you cut your lawn the same damn way every single time? (laughs) Like, a few weeks ago, I began with a very tight circle, and I, I cut my lawn in large concentric circles. And my wife looked at me afterwards and she said, <laughs> I, it took you about an additional 45 minutes to cut the lawn that way. And I beg of you, please do it again. <laughs> and it was like, it was so freaking fun. You know, to work on, I mean, I had to work on so much more concentration. I couldn't smoke a cigar as I normally do. Uh, But nonetheless, there was something exhilarating and simply moving Mm -hmm. in a different direction. Well, that's more right hemisphere, and it often gets us, we perceive it, gets us in trouble. Mm -hmm. And we've been told many times don't be so sensitive. Don't don't be so emotional. Uh, boys don't cry. It's all language to shut down creativity. You make me think that 
art and creativity moves against the supremacy of pragmatism. And it, it finds meaning outside of the confines of, of practicality, if you will. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, take, take what you just said and go supremacy of all forms. Uh, art begins to expose white supremacy. Right. Art exposes uh, uh, forms of misogyny and violence against gender, against sexual orientation, against so much. And that's why the artist is so feared and yet, on the other hand, so necessary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, you go... I mean, there's so many pieces of art that have sold for massive, bizarre sums of money. Why? Well, power, prestige, yes. Supremacy on one hand, yes. But always because there's a taste of Eden in that, that people want to own. But when you realize that the exposure itself is the invitation to you are meant to create. All creation is calling you back to create. And you can't possess beauty. You can be taken by beauty, but you cannot possess it. And that's where I think virtually all forms of supremacy are a demand for control and power over beauty to define it, to own it, and ultimately to ruin it. Wow. And true artists... I don't care if they're selling something for a dollar or millions. True artists can't be owned. True artists can't be owned. I want that on a t-shirt. <laughs> well, you know, it, it makes me think, it, on one hand, of the biblical prophets, who in my own view, I see them as the original performance artists before we knew to call them the performance yes. artists. I mean, when you look at, yes. you know, when you look at Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the weird things that these guys were doing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's, it's, it's just mind blowing, you know? Yep. But there's a, there's a, a holy disturbance, if you will, where they know that they have a notion that there's something more, there's something yet to be discovered. There's, there's still another part of the story that they just feel that angst and that disturbance uh, to, to dive into that unknown and to give expression to the invisible, if you will. Yes. Oh, brilliant. I, I mean, the first spoken word artists are prophets. That's right. <laughs> you know, exactly. in, in so many ways, the notion of a performance. I, I mean, it is, I, I mean, Hosea to me is maybe the ultimate. Uh, the fact that you know, prophets are called to be naked at times, uh, hung in pits of dung at times, <laughs> but to marry a prostituted woman, mm. to reveal something about the nature of the idolatry of the people, and yet to actually have a relationship, mm -hmm. not just an act to expose, but an actual grieving relationship, a, a hope-based relationship. It is so important to hear that Poema, the whole notion of creation, is a poem. It is a spoken and lived word, but translated in a way in which it isn't just so-called words on a page. It's a person in act that brings the word 
well, in this case, left and right hemisphere into an intersection that again calls the heart to be alive. Hi, everybody. This is Corey Fry. I'm the facilitator of the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective. I wanted to invite you all to join us starting Wednesday, April 6th for our next online patron book club. This month, we're going to read through Henry Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. This book is an incredible example of how a chance encounter with art can lead to a deeper, even life-altering spiritual experience. Join us every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and lend your voice to the discussion. See the show notes of this episode or sign up at patreon.com slash makers and mystics. I want to go back to what you were saying a few minutes ago about the sensitivity of the artist and, you know, how often that has been scorned, but it's also a, a gift given from God, I believe. And it's also such an essential part of the creative process, this sensitivity that moves between the right hemisphere and in a sense, the left hemisphere maybe that serves the creative process when it's when those two hemispheres are working in a healthy relationship would you say that that maybe the pragmatism of the left hemisphere can serve the beauty and the intuition of the right hemisphere yeah when it works here's the hard news it seldom works so you know, most of the writers that I adore were severe alcoholics um, or did not get along well in their relationships. If, if you know much about Chagall, he was a thoroughgoing narcissist and in many ways hated his son, was deplorable to his wives. Uh, again, I'm not justifying. Uh, I'm not saying there's a, a sensual uh, madness that creates havoc, but it's part of the price of being an artist. Right. Which a lot of people would say. Yeah. But what I want to say is, though, don't create justification for idolatry and sin. But let's also say the labor of holding paradox at the level that is right hemispheric has a cost in our culture and in our own bodies. And that is, there will be, generally speaking, a little bit of oddity if you're comparing yourself to, you know, your next door neighbor who's a electrical engineer and your other next door neighbor who happens to be a salesperson. Mm -hmm. um, not saying they're normal. But they, they probably didn't mow their yard in a circle, is they what you're don't. saying. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, they have their own oddities, but, right. but they're often not being asked to live in the tension between the already and not yet at the same level that an artist is. So again, no justification for just being uh, addictively violent to oneself mm -hmm. or others. Right. Yet again, the yet, it's not a but, yet, there will be a cost to your artistry in that interplay of, of what's required to create and then bearing your creation when it's finished. And I know so many artists who can't let themselves be finished, whether it's with a painting or with a novel. Why? Well, cheap words would be fear of criticism, but the far mm -hmm. deeper word is a fear of not living out 
the glory that they know they were meant to create. And that's mm-hmm. that despair, that's that lament, that if you don't enter the lament and allow that even what you do create creates a desire for even more, well, then you're going to end up in subterfuge, an escape from that lament versus being able to enter that lament in a way that most electrical engineers and most salespeople don't have to bear quite in the same way. You know, this conversation leads me to your latest book. I think this is a real apparent segue for me talking about the the troubled nature of the artist because your your latest book is titled Redeeming Heartache, How Past Suffering Reveals Our True Calling. And this is a book that you co-authored with Kathy Lorzell, who is also the co-founder of the Allender Center. And from my reading, it seems like much of the writing was done during the initial phases of when COVID hit America. And so it carries a particular timeliness on a widespread level. But I know for me, the subject matter of this book couldn't have come at a more personal or appropriate time uh, to address some of my own troubledness and some of my own trouble as an artist and some of the things that I've been going through in my own life. Mm -hmm. And so I'd love to talk about the book as it relates to the artist and as it relates to the creative process that we're discussing today and pulling from the back cover Redeeming Heartache offers the reader a new way to look at our emotional pain and the trauma and how past suffering enables us to experience healing in the present and to find our way to a joy-filled future. Tell me why this book is important now and what you hope for readers to take away from it. Well, it begins with such a simple premise, and that is nobody can escape trauma. And that requires a little bit of labor to say trauma is different than crisis. It's different than hard times. It's where our body feels a heightened level of threat to our lives and not just physically. It could be to our reputation, to our marriage, to our friendships. But whenever you feel a threat that you know you are somewhat powerless to manage and then a sense of somehow I'm wrong to not be able to resolve it. You've got all the makings of of trauma. And there are three core archetypes that we see particularly in the Old Testament. That is the notion of being an orphan, a stranger, and a widow. And those are languages for the word trauma. You know, loss of parents, being in exile, loss of a beloved spouse. But If we think of them only concretely, literally, I'm not an orphan. I'm currently not a widow. And even though I may be strange, I'm I'm not in (laughs) exile. So, but if we see that the word is actually a way of helping us enter into the nature of what it means to live in a fallen world, where we lose identity, orphan, where we lose a sense of connection, stranger, and where we lose love, widow, then we begin to get a better sense that this is an invitation to name. And until we name, until we engage sensually the reality of our condition, we'll always be in some degree of flight. Where? Well, a flight back into Eden, which is a prescription for... Uh, ongoing failure, because apparently there are at least two angels that bar the way. So, 
our efforts to get back in Eden are honorable unless we're trying to get back into Eden. And so we began to play with this. There are three core categories for Jesus as the one to follow. He is our priest. He is our prophet. And he is our king. So prophet, priest, and king become the core categories. And what we're trying to build is a bridge. That is, those who have been orphaned, that is, who have lost a sense of their identity, actually are have a they have a calling to become priests. And what is a priest? The one who reminds us of our story. And those who know what it is to be strange. And that's why I argue the artist community generally is made up of exiles and strangers. They're the ones who are uniquely called to be prophets, and that is to, in one sense, allure and expose. But those who know suffering and death are the ones who know particularly what it means to lead as a king or a queen. But our assumption, once I lay out that schema, is that the way our world is meant to work is that nobody gets to pick one category and say, I'm a prophet, I'm a priest or a king or a queen. The fact is we're to be like Jesus, who is the perfect prophet, priest, king. And that means all of us as prophets need to be growing as priests and kings or queens. Those who are queens and kings need to be growing prophetically and priestly. So it's an effort to go from our suffering, we have a direction to grow that allows us as an artist to know that every artist is telling a story. Priestly work, every artist is arousing prophetic work, and every artist is at least creating something of an image of what is one day meant to be, and that is the work of a, of a king or a queen. So all that to say, my suffering is meant to lead me into how I'm to live my life. Wow, that's beautiful. One thing that stands out to me from the book is your point on how suffering or trauma and unhealed wounds lead us to construct a false Eden. And we were talking about Eden just a little bit ago. And this in particular stands out to me in relation to what we've been talking about, the artist creating from the intersections of the already and the not yet. I suppose we're all creating at these intersections in some respects, whether we're creating works of art or whether we're creating false Edens to protect us yeah. from the trauma of our own experiences. I'd love to know how you determine that unhealed wounds lead us to construct false Edens in our lives. Well, a, a good example for me is, you know, when we look back to March, April of 2020, to September, October of that year, my wife and I ate like fools. <laughs> Between the two of us, we were drinking two-thirds to three-quarters of a bottle of wine a night. And mm -hmm. I... I like one glass of wine, no big deal. We were having two, two and a half glasses of wine every night. Yeah. And as I literally, somewhere October, November of that year, sort of went, uh, my pants aren't fitting. Right. Yeah. Uh, like, how come? Well, you've been living in flight. Now, again, hear the, the complexity of this. 
all our idolatry has some beauty to it. And, and it, yes, it's deadly and wrong, but don't deny that the desire for safety, for relief, uh, for joy in the midst of that wickedly complex period, not that we're really out of it, uh, there is something very honorable. So even my hunger for Eden, even the demand for it, bears some beauty. But often, that which is beautiful becomes indulgent and a demand. And when you have those two words, indulgence, meaning you satiate what can only be engaged through lament, and then you demand more, because satiation never is satisfaction. And the more I satiate, actually the more hunger it creates, therefore more demand. So whenever you've got that interplay of indulgence and entitlement, you got yourself a nasty pair of companions that's going to kill you. And so, it, again, it took my wife and I a deeply disruptive period to go, uh, you know, we're good with wine. We're good with good food. But right now, we've got to address the reality that we've been sneaking, trying to sneak back into Eden. So the work is then not to condemn the hunger, not to, to condemn even the, the, the desire, but to honor that desire can be lived out within a range of new creativity on behalf of oneself and others. And that's part of the work of writing the book, thank God, happened in that period. So right. I'm reminding people to give up a false Eden while I'm writing a book as I'm drinking heavily, at least for me, <laughs> and, and then being right. able to step back and go, this is really not the man that I want to be. That's so good, Dan. And honestly, this speaks so directly to my own experience. And I know many of us adopted unhealthy, toxic, even destructive coping mechanisms to try and avoid the pain and the wounding in our own hearts and in our own culture. We've all been carrying deep disappointments that we're trying to alleviate. But these patterns of coping, and I'm taking words from your book cover here, they actually lead us away from restoration, away from wholeness, away from fulfillment, and away from our heart's true calling. But I'm curious to know from you how engaging our suffering or how engaging our past suffering actually helps to reveal our heart's true calling. Thank you. That's, that's a great, great question. I start with, you know, you don't want to just give a verse, but here is one that's worthy of a lot of thought. Romans 2, verse 4, it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And Paul, in that passage, says, and why? I, you almost can hear his lament, and why do you treat the kindness of God with contempt? So, the war for every one of us is shame. And again, part of our difficulty in owning up until my pants didn't fit was, I, I don't want to enter the shame of how I'm indulging and escaping. But God's response to our sin is such kindness. Uh, his response to our brokenness is such kindness, to our desire such kindness. And 
when we begin to hear loud and clear, it's not the righteousness of God that leads to repentance. It's not truth that leads to repentance. Oh, those are helpful, but it's kindness. And what he's asking of you and me as artists, as potentially indulgent and demanding men, is enter your brokenness and do so with my kindness. And I'm going, hell no. <laughs> I'm going, I'll take care of it. I'll grab mm -hmm. myself by the throat and yank myself back, lose a few pounds. And it's like, no, well, that's just another way to get back to Eden. Um, what would cost you, well, my life, if you were to receive my delight, my honor, my kindness? That's the radicality to me of the gospel. And to begin by saying, to enter your own trauma current, well, my work as a trauma therapist, what I've noted tending natural disasters, hurricanes, et cetera, et cetera, people don't talk about the loss of their homes, and yet they could because they just did. What they talk about is the divorce that occurred 10 years ago, the past sexual abuse 30, 40 years ago. Trauma awakens trauma. Or another way of putting that, current trauma awakens unaddressed trauma. So most of us just sort of get on with life, and it works up to a point, but then we engage levels of trauma that leave us with threat, with powerlessness, with some level of fault, moral fault to ourselves, and the unaddressed, the unseen, the dark unseen comes to the surface. And that's the kindness of God. It may not seem like it, but it's the kindness of God that says, I want to heal you. Oh, I will heal you when you stand before me. I will make you as I am. But prior to that, wouldn't you like a bit more joy? And I'm like, <laughs> uh, yeah, my way. Uh, your way? Your way of dealing with the past and the present and the future? Look, I don't, I'm a believer. I am a follower of Jesus. I'm also an unbeliever. I don't believe any of this stuff. And yet, I do. And the operative word, though, is help, help. And I think that's where, in your cry for help, of being able to say, I believe, yeah. help my unbelief, can the word help be said with kindness? And if so, he is more than able and willing to offer levels of help with regard to our own past that's playing itself in the present and will in some way shroud the future, he is more than willing to engage all dimensions of time. Dan, thank you so much for joining me on the Makers and Mystics podcast. I have benefited personally in my own journey just from listening to you speak and reading the books that I've read of yours over the past few weeks. And I just really honor you and thank you for talking to our community today. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. It has been a sweet gift to be with you. The questions 
are just going to linger for me. I, I've I've responded to them, but now I'm having to th- actually think about them again. And so I thank you for being the kind of presence and person who offers artists the opportunity to dig deeper into why they exist and what they're actually doing. Thank you for joining us on today's episode. If you'd like to hear the additional interview segment on Sabbath, Creativity, and Delight, follow the link in the show notes of this episode and join our creative collective on Patreon today. This episode was produced by me, Stephen Roach, with music provided by composer Sean Williams. We'll see you again next week, and in the meantime, keep creating. The world needs your art.